found myself with my head outside of the womb with my mother. Being awake, His eyes went from almost jet black to like pure blue during the process. When the heart breaks, there's an opening. There's a great opening into a big, big space. It was maybe the first moment of clarity and honesty and the first real connection I'd ever had to the universe. We are all inherent pure enlightened consciousness and wisdom and compassion. We just are in different stages of unveiling. So that's what keeps us alive. We put our energies out there and we get blessed back. The Mirror Cave. The Mirror Cave, episode 18, a primal dynamic. Banjo and fiddle player David Bragger talks about his bizarre and more than slightly disturbing experience of traveling with itinerant gypsy street magicians in India, as well as the raw appeal of old-time American folk music. So I guess it all starts with the uh, the banjo. nothing I ever was drawn to as a young child and then my mom told me that I should play the banjo and that was puzzling and probably made me not want to even consider it and uh, I think the closest I got to it was probably playing a a banjo sound on a synthesizer for some kind of avant-garde music project I really enjoyed the sounds of synthesized instruments that don't sound authentic at all. And that started, that awakened the interest in some of the uh, the Bollywood music, where they would incorporate all kinds of strange Western sounds with Eastern sounds without a, a care, you know, for anything except making strange, happy, danceable music. So... I guess that was one seed was planted there as well. So basically, what happened is I I started playing the sitar very seriously and studied under the, uh, the head of ethnomusicology at UC Santa Barbara. And then later on under the great Shujat Khan, the son of Vilayat Khan, one of the greatest sitar players of modern times. And during, during this period, 
uh, I went to India to further sitar studies. And before I left, I visited my aunt in Pennsylvania, and she had a banjo in the closet. And on that same trip, I was visiting uh, a good friend of mine since childhood, Greg Graffin, who's the lead singer of Bad Religion. And he had a banjo as well, but uh, he, he had really started turning me on to Doc Watson music. So there was this two-week period where I was hanging out in the East, Urn, United States, and toying around with a banjo. So flash forward a month, and I go to India, and all I could think about in India when I wasn't thinking about itinerant street magicians was the banjo. It just kept coming back to that. And I did not end up doing anything with the sitar while in India. Instead, I decided to uh, stick with this traveling medicine show, as it were, of itinerant gypsy street magicians and traveled around conning villagers and uh, thinking about the banjo. I was studying Hindi and I had a chance meeting with Lee Siegel, a Sanskritist who's also an author of, of fiction. And, uh, and we sort of hit it off. He, he, he was, he's a real academic who comes across not much like an academic at times. His enthusiasm seems to transcend what I would typically expect from a Sanskritist. Um, so he had spent time with some of these magicians in the eighties and, uh, said, Oh, you're going to India. I can probably write some letters and hook you up with these people. So he, he in fact did. And when I, when I arrived in India within about two days, they found me. Yeah, so I was staying in this guest house in Delhi, and I uh, went out for the day. And uh, while I was out, uh, they apparently stopped by, and the uh, one of the brothers who owns the guest house told me that that these real unsavory characters came by looking for me, and he shooed them away, and so they could never come back. And I instantly knew those are the Jadugar. The street magicians and uh, I was really concerned that they would not come back but they know better the next day one of them but it, probably one the uh, the owner did not see uh, came back and luckily I hooked up and it was it was instantaneous uh, immersion he came and it's not like we had a, a cup of coffee together he brought me outside and he pointed and there was a uh, a wagon full of adults and kids and he said let's go and we we took it outside of 
the city into a, a smaller village outside of Delhi, and uh, they did their thing. Like I said, or hinted at earlier, it was a real medicine show, like the medicine show of old America. I mean, literally in a wagon, you go from village to village with these people and you do magic and it comes across as entertainment for about 10 or 15 minutes, but it's not, it's illegal. It's not something you see, you don't have Indian buskers doing it on the streets in, in a big city unless they're, they're really desperate that's risky behavior because they will be arrested and fined because Indian street magic is about taking money from people uh, using very very old ancient sleight of hand and uh, emotional blackmail so it, it is it is this amazing folk art and it is pure con artistry using religion as the uh, the lure yeah yeah we went to this village and Again, not not far outside of Delhi at all, and um, we get out of the wagon, and the magicians do their thing, and this is what it is: the family immediately intersperses around the area, and they'll often do these where where people tend to congregate, like at a bus stop or something, or in front of some kind of tea house. And they, anyway, most of the family, they blend in. And magic is always done as a father-son dynamic. And it might not really be a father and son. It might be an uncle and a nephew posing as a father and a son. But often it's a father and a son. And what they do is they, they, they spike a spike into the ground and, and tie a mongoose to it. And then they set a cobra a few feet away. And it creates this real primal dynamic, this just super tension that transcends time and, and history, right? And that attracts people. Why is there a cobra and a mongoose in front of me? So it starts attracting a little bit of a crowd of, of uh, bystanders. And then the father and son come out and they start doing really amazing classic Indian street magic like the cups and balls which is just one of the greatest greatest examples of sleight of hand there is so they, they do things like the cups and balls they tell jokes and uh, so it, it's again folk art interspersed with schlock and and uh, modern you know anecdotes and references and some of the magic starts getting just you know a little more sinister um, and it's stuff Houdini did like swallowing tons of splintery thorns like you know 50 60 of them and then regurgitating them and they're all strung together you know that that, that kind of stuff um, or swallowing huge iron balls and regurgitating those so they, they go through this list of uh, of, of great folk magic antics and things start changing they do the sword in the basket trick and what happens is is the father stuffs his son in the basket and he and they talk to each other 
and depending on on the day the the banter might change a little bit but even that starts off a little lighthearted where he claims to have made his son disappear and you can't hear his son any longer as proof of him disappearing and he'll send him up to heaven or his son will be hanging out with a movie star a bollywood movie star not want to come back and then all of a sudden things just dramatically change and he doesn't use a sword but he has this huge rusty knife and he just he uh starts sticking it inside of of the box or the basket really it's not a basket it's it's like a trapezoidal uh stick configuration with fabric around it so he's sticking and a blanket on top and and he's sticking this knife in really violently and he pulls it out and it's covered in blood and uh people start looking really really concerned at this point this is where i'm seeing grown men like shaking and i'm with these people and I sort of know what's going on here, but the visceral reaction of seeing a child being stabbed in public in daylight with a, a, an audience 360 degrees around the event, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And, and, it's, and it's really frightening. So he's stabbing, he's stabbing him, and then he looks at all of us and says his son will die very shortly or again depending on the day or is dead and uh it's on their heads because they wanted to watch this and he said but i could sacrifice an animal tomorrow in exchange for the life of my son but i'm going to need money to buy that animal and if you give that to me i will restore him now and sacrifice tomorrow right and so these are poor people and they they pull out the rupees and start start throwing the money out to the magician so he uh sticks the knife in again pulls the kid out as further proof because there are some people that did not pay up and yeah, he pulls the kid out and there's a knife going right from one side of the neck to the other and blood pouring down his chest and the kid's convulsing. And that does it. And everyone is dishing out the dough. So he promises he'll restore the kid and he pulls out a monkey skull, sets it on the ground and he has a canister of blood and he pours it on the skull and the skull ignites on fire. And he says some incantations, which are different from village to village. This is a Hindu village, so it was all Hindu. And uh, stuffs the kid back in the box, says more incantations, and then he pulls the child out, covered in blood and the knife taken away from his neck, right? And he explains to everybody that the child, his son, will be mentally deranged for the rest of his life and will not be able to function on his own. So if they have any more rupees to give him, that would be really appreciated. So this kid walks around totally delirious, 
from spectator to spectator and takes them for everything they got. And uh, he sits down, and it's a very, very somber tone at this point. And uh, the magician says, thank you, and promises he will sacrifice an animal tomorrow. And people start leaving. So as they're dispersing, the magician jumps up and calls out to them and says, wait, I have a box of magical rings. And these rings will do anything. They will get you They will make you rich. Anything you want, I have them. So people start coming back. And you think everyone got rid of every piece of money. But no, there's still some rupees floating around in these pockets. So he pulls out this box. He starts displaying the rings. And people rush back. And they're buying these magical rings. These little gems on these bright silver rings. And the gems are made out of plastic. And and the, the silver is really... A, cheap cheap tin they buy them by the thousands in cashmere so after that final piece of con artistry is done people leave sort of freaked out and they don't go back to that village for at least another year until people forget yeah and that's what we did so my role was interesting i would depending on where we were i would sometimes you know be a confederate and act like a tourist and either for laughs or they would do it to, to create a sense of solidarity with the crowd. So what ended up happening several times is they asked me to do certain things and the crowd immediate, you know, people from the crowd immediately jump in and pull me away and try to save me because many of them do know that these are very unsavory types. Um, what I didn't mention is often the extended family that are there, the little ones will be pick, pickpocketing as well, right? Um, anyway, so, you know, some of these people are in the know, and again, to a certain degree. And uh, it, it's a really in- interesting psychological move to put me, to put me in the, uh, the boiling pot and, and actually have the spectators rescue me. I mean, it's difficult for me to assess what percentage of their pockets or their income were given to these magicians. But in the end, they paid for a dying folk art, a really seriously legitimate, legitimate folk art. And uh, unlike, you know, the modern psychics of today who take people for everything that they have, including their homes. You know, some of these people might have been taken for a day's wages, but they did get some really amazing entertainment, even if they were scared this for half of it. interesting things I, I experienced with them was when they took me to their home in Delhi. They lived in a place called Kataputali Colony 
and a katapultali is a puppet. And it's a basically a slum ghetto like one would imagine that one would see in a third world country. So sticks and tarps and luck you might be lucky to have one brick wall to prop everything against. And Kataputali colony is not somewhere that you would go on your own as an American. You could be killed, most likely mugged and, and, and beat up. So they take me there, which is great because I'm safe. And you, it, there was a right off the road, there was this candy sweet, uh, sweet shop, which are really popular in India, right? Tons and tons of different kinds of sickly sweets. And behind the sweet shop is the entrance into this gigantic labyrinth. And as they start walking me through, I'm lost after about four turns. It is a maze, a complete maze of artist dwellings. So what you have there is you have puppeteers, hence hence Kataputali colony. So as I'm walking through these really narrow dirt paths, you have these trenches on each side with just open sewage. So they're taking me through to their home and you know, we're walking and turning, I'm completely lost. And I look to my left in one little dwelling and there's a family of, of puppet makers and they're sitting there sewing puppets together. And, uh, and then you make another couple turns and there's a bear with a muzzle, like a full grown bear. And I, I remember that just completely freaked me out. And uh, I make a couple more turns and kids are chasing dogs and beating them with sticks. And we finally get to the uh, where the magicians lived. And I think that there had to have been about 15 of them living in a space that, you know, the size of a typical bedroom. And, uh, and I hung out there for a couple days and ate a lot of potatoes and, and, uh, and naan and uh, recorded folk tales. And they did magic for me. And... Uh, the, I'll, I'll never forget that, the Kataputali colony. And as I understand, it has been destroyed, leveled. And they, all, all of those people, again, are homeless and dispersed probably throughout the country. Because one thing about these magicians is there's a brotherhood. And I went all the way down to the, to the south of India with them as well, meeting up with other magicians of this brotherhood, just like you would imagine in, in Dickens or something. And they swap stories of course oh you can go here you can make money here but not there the authorities are bad there and they swap uh they swap magic tricks which is really really cool too um and i remember seeing this one little girl who was completely blind with these like white bluish greenish eyes and uh, she was just this beautiful, beautiful little girl about about the age of one of my girls right now, just completely blind. And as a young female in a magician family, she was still learning how to you know, make things and sew things and prepare things for the men who do all the magic.
So I got back and bought a $300 Samic Korean-made banjo. It looked horrible, felt horrible, and sounded horrible, and it should have discouraged me instantly, but it didn't. And I also, at that time, inherited my great-uncle's fiddle. So I started learning the two pretty much simultaneously. And that was a very, very difficult process, figuring out how to learn traditional American music. So I got obsessed with the banjo and the fiddle, and I was listening to a lot of Doc Watson family recordings, the real old rustic stuff. And uh, the well, Doc's playing, I, I love, I adore it. And the fiddling from uh, Gaither Carlton on those early recordings just blew my mind. But when getting into this, I really wasn't that clear on the line between bluegrass and old-time music. And I went about things the wrong way. I tried to take some music lessons from a store. I started to teach myself how to read music. And the more I went down that route, uh, the further away I was getting from the sounds that I was in intrigued by. decided to go to uh, this parking lot bluegrass festival in West Virginia with some friends who are also getting interested in the music. And we go out there, and it's out in the middle of nowhere, and there's no parking lot really. It, it's, it's called Clifftop, and it's considered the mecca, the, the woodstock of old-time music. And I, I had no idea. So I accidentally went to the right place and I heard all of this bizarre, surreal, crooked West Virginia fiddle music. And I knew instantly that's the stuff I, I had to learn. And I was walking around at 3 a.m. one night and stumbled across this fiddler that had mesmerizing rhythm. And uh, it just turns out that he used to live two miles from where I was living at the time and uh, told me exactly who to go see to learn how to bow the fiddle. Because it's all in the bowing. It is a rhythm instrument. The notes are very, very secondary, contrary to what any violinist or bluegrass fiddler would say. Well, I guess there's, there are several strains of, of old-time music that I appreciate. And there are a few strains that, that I really like, but what, what it always comes back to is the very, very rhythmic old-time music. And I really enjoy the tunes, of course, that are crooked and, and bizarre and surreal and, and beautiful and have all of these, these qualities that are difficult to define. But it turns out that a lot of the the early black Appalachian music and musicians, white musicians that were heavily inspired or may have even learned from some of these early black musicians. That's the stuff that I keep going back to. 
it is much, much more interesting, unpredictable, and powerful than the most avant-garde modern music. So some of these tunes, and, and you can find them in a lot of places, but there's what gra- grabbed me were these West Virginia tunes where you just had no idea where the melody is going, meandering, going to strange, exotic places. is a musician based in Los Angeles. He teaches Boeing and banjo in person and on Skype, as well as running a record label that produces videos and recordings of contemporary old-time musicians, including Dan Gellert, who gets my vote for the greatest living banjo player. You can find information on David's activities, as well as many fine music links on his website, oldtimetikiparlor.com. That's 